Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode is supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. This time, we hear from a World War II-era Air Force veteran, and he's going to tell us about what it was like to grow up in aviation in the 1930s, and we'll listen to his experiences while in the Air Force and as he tried to find every little bit of time that he could to fly. I always wanted to be a pilot. I knew I wanted to be a pilot, and uh, everything that I did, uh, I wanted to work toward doing that. And finally, uh, it turned out I uh, had a ride in a Barnstormer's airplane in about 1931. Uh, he was using the uh, my grandfather's alfalfa field as a airport, so he'd just come over there on a weekend and uh, start as airplane or as people uh, saw the airplane there. Why they'd come in and go take a ride. So for the use of using my grandfather's uh, alfalfa field, uh, he took my grandfather and myself and. Uh, my cousin for a ride when when uh, I was six years old. And I think that I had determined that I wanted to be a pilot even before that airplane ride. But after that airplane ride, I was sold on it. I was born on a farm. Uh, my father was a farmer. So uh, obviously I worked on the farm uh, when I was able, uh, old enough to do anything. But every time I, an airplane would, I'd hear an airplane going over our little town of Petersburg, Indiana, and with the nearest airport being 25 miles away, uh, I'd go out and, and watch it. And I remember, uh, golly, when I was just a few years old, I started pestering my folks to buy me a, a model airplane kit. I had a, a somewhere I saw advertisement for a model airplane kit for 75 cents in the magazine. So finally they gave in and, and bought me that model airplane kit, but I didn't know what to do, how to do it, and neither did my folks. So it just, I don't know whatever happened to it. But early on in, in school, I was uh, knowing that I was interested in uh, aviation. And when our storyteller was 16 and in the middle of high school, the U.S. entered World War II. So uh, everybody was going to be drafted or every, all eligible people were going to have to be in the service. So I thought, uh, oh, hallelujah, here's my opportunity to go into the Air Force and let them train me as a pilot. And while I was uh, still 17, the uh, Air Force had a program called, uh, oh, I forgot exactly what it was called, but I could enlist in the aviation cadet program and then when I turned 18 and was graduated from college, then I would be called up. And I graduated in May of 1943 from high school. But my birthday wasn't until July. So about uh, three weeks after I turned 18, well, I got my call up. So I went right straight into the uh, military. And it was a program that was dedicated to getting uh, aviation cadets. So uh, I did that and got into the military and and it was a little tough, but uh, I was glad to do it. 
uh, knowing what my future would be. But after I'd been in for about a year and had basic training and uh, they sent us to college for, for a, a semester. And during that college time, we got 10 hours of dual flight instruction in Cubs or Aronkas. And uh, we had two weeks of real good ground school. So I got 10 hours of a real good ground school or, or flying and, and good ground school. That, that really was a thrill and I enjoyed it greatly. Then we went to a place where they were going to classify all of the people in this cadet program, either for bombardier or navigator or pilot. And we had three days of written tests and, and little things that we'd do. And they put us in a something to uh, get us kind of mixed up for uh, facial disorientation. So at the conclusion of that, and this was in, in the 1944, the uh, war was going rather favorably for us, so they didn't need a lot of pilots. And unfortunately, they classified me to go to navigator school. I, I had a score of nine on the test to uh, go to pilot school, nine for navigator school, or five for bombardier. So I was one of those that was not uh, chosen as a pilot. That was real tough on me <laughs> at the time. But uh, it turned out it turned to be rather fortunate uh, that way. So I did go ahead uh, with the navigation school. And after uh, four months of navigator school, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant and a navigator and then promptly assigned to a training school called Combat Crew Training and uh, B-24s. So uh, I, I was paired up with a uh, 10-member B-24 crew. And then at the end of that, in August of 1945, we were fully trained and ready to go, go to combat area. So they put us on the troop train, and we were en route to California. And then we would have been either flown an airplane to the Pacific or flown over there as replacements for those that didn't come back. So uh, we didn't go to a combat zone. And about this time, well, before I finished combat crew training in Walla Walla, Washington, I went to the local airport and rented a civilian airplane. And they gave me another three hours of dual instruction, and then I was able to solo. So then I was doing that. And uh, when I was able, I'd go to the local airport, wherever I was, even still in the service and rent an airplane and do a little bit of flying. After the war, our storyteller returned home and used the GI Bill to pay for his college education. But before he could, he had to work on his father's farm, which didn't leave him much time for flying. I was working on dad's farm six days a week, and only day I had to fly was on a, on a Sunday. So that's why I bought that uh, Stearman, so I could fly it all day long. And it was a nice flying airplane. I got a little bit more uh, instruction, and in July of 1946, I got my private license and kept flying that Stearman. Then I started going to college, and we were going to Vincennes University. Uh, their credits uh, were all transferable to Purdue University, where I really wanted to go to school. So I had two years in Vincennes uh, University and then went on to Purdue. Then I, I continued my flying and 
I took a, a, a course in in Purdue, a credit a credit course in Purdue for the uh, CFI. So I got my instructor's rating uh, in, in Purdue. I then started in, uh, instructing for the other people in the lower courses at Purdue, which got started getting paid for it, $3 an hour for, for instruction and enjoyed it. And it was, it was nice. So I graduated Purdue with a, with a BS and I had my uh, CFI and my A&P and 500 hours in my logbook. And then the Air Force uh, again was looking for pilots now. So I applied to be recalled and they recalled me uh, to go right straight into pilot training and and as a second lieutenant. So I spent an hour flying or a year flying uh, Air Force airplanes, started with the T-6, then the uh, T-28 and then the B-25 and thoroughly enjoyed it except Initially, when I went into the B-25, it was a big, heavy airplane. And I thought, oh boy, I made a mistake now in in getting into the heavy airplane. But then, uh, just a little while later, it all came to me and and I thoroughly enjoyed flying the B-25. After we graduated, they were needing, uh, I graduated in 1950, and uh, that's when the Korean War started. So they needed pilots again, for B-29s. So our whole graduating class then uh, went to B-29 transition school. I didn't like the B-29, and it had kind of a reputation of engine problems. But uh, one day, I, uh, one of the other fellows in the squadron said, hey, I hear they're looking for a B-29 co-pilot to go to Alaska. So I hopped right over to the orderly room and said, hey, is that true? Yep, I'll take it. So then I went home for lunch and opened the front door and said, hey, guess what, Pat? And I said, we're going to Alaska. That's Patricia, our storyteller's wife. I don't know to this day where that came from, but he always knew there were two places I didn't want to go, and one was Alaska and the other one was Russia. (laughs) So uh, I went went to Alaska. In fact, uh, we drove up the Alcan Highway towing a little trailer. <laughs> Quite an experience in itself. So when we got there, they didn't have any B-29s in Alaska. So that's just exactly what I wanted. I didn't I didn't want a, a B-29. So I, I got into flying the C-47. And uh, just a few months after we got there, then I was transferred to the instrument flying school as an instructor. So I got to instruct in the C-47. I got a thousand hours of instruction, which I think the instructor learns almost as much as a student for a while. So then after that, uh, after we spent two years there, and we got along all right, it wasn't unbearable. Then uh, the Air Force transferred me to Ogden, Utah, Hill Air Force Base. We drove down back down the Alcan from Alaska. <laughs> uh, I went to the local airport, and they had a Cessna 170 for sale. So uh, the next day, I bought that Cessna 170, and uh, I hadn't flown little airplanes in a, quite a while. So the next day, I went out to uh, get a little time in it. Then uh, the day after that, why we got in it and 
left the car in uh, Ogden and and flew to uh, Indiana. So uh, we haven't done much highway driving ever since. But back at Hill Air Force Base, our storyteller started to fly the C-124, which is a massive cargo plane. It was such a big airplane, I didn't really didn't enjoy it. I'm, I'm glad now that I had the experience looking back on it, but at the time it wasn't uh, a lot of fun. After uh, I'd been in it a while, I, I got used to it. Our squadron was had a special mission of, of moving nuclear uh, weapons uh, systems around. If they needed, there wasn't much need for it. Uh, they, uh, they weren't going to use nuclear missiles in the uh, Korean War. So uh, we did travel. We got uh, to uh, all over the Pacific, Honolulu and Midway and Wake Island, Guam, Okinawa, Japan, also to, to uh, Europe. Finally, I was checked out as a captain in that airplane. One reason I didn't like it was that we had such a, a big crew. It'd be, uh, there's a minimum crew of, of uh, five uh, to fly this, an airplane like that. But sometimes we'd have oh, 15, 18 crew members when we'd go on a long trip. If we had nuclear stuff on the airplane and the cargo, we'd always have our, our own air police, air, air force air police, to uh, guard the airplane at night. So after I'd been checked out in the airplane, we went home to Indiana for a leave. And I tell people, well, they just checked me out in the airplane. I'm probably going to be there for another two, three years. Got back to uh, a base at Ogden, Utah, and I had orders to go to a desk job in Wright-Patterson at Dayton, Ohio. So I knew I wasn't going to like that because I wanted to fly full-time. I'd been able to fly some, but not much. Uh, after I was there, I decided I was going to get out of the Air Force, and I did. Now out of the Air Force, our storyteller started looking for jobs as a corporate pilot. I'd advertised in uh, Aviation Week magazine uh, for a job, and I got one uh, inquiry, and that was uh, to go to IBM as a co-pilot. So the day after I got out of the Air Force, I went to Poughkeepsie, New York, where they had uh, two DC-3s, which were converted from C-47s. So flew there for a while. And, and from there on, why uh, I didn't stay there very long. I got another job in Chicago and didn't stay there very long. Then I went to a job in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and we were there for 26 years. I was corporate pilot for 32 years. At the time, Pat did not want me to, to uh, get out of the Air Force, but uh, I'd had 10, hours of act- or 10 years of active duty. Then uh, I stayed in the Air Force Reserve for another 10 years and retired. Our storyteller has over 25,000 flight hours logged to date, and in those he never crashed or thought he was going to crash, and he never got any violations. However, he did have some more interesting flights, which he calls war stories. Our storyteller never saw combat, but that's just what he calls his more eventful flights, and he shared a couple of them with us. In the C-124, we were flying uh, up to uh, Goose Bay in the wintertime, and and again, we had a, a big crew I was one of three pilots, but I was in the in the left seat at the time this happened, and another pilot in the right seat. So that other pilot uh, wanted to get some instrument time, so we were flying in and out of the cumulus clouds, 
and uh, getting some ice built up. So I didn't turn the windshield heaters on purposely so that when we weren't in clouds, he still couldn't see out uh, forward. He was had to fly by instruments, hand fly. And uh, pretty soon the ice started building up and we had one engine feathered. Uh, a generator had failed and we had to feather one engine. So we were flying on three engines instead of four. Then we started building up ice and quite a bit of ice and more ice and the airspeed started decreasing. And uh, I asked the flight engineer to give us more power so we did that, and the airspeed kept slowing down, more power, and finally uh, looked like it was getting kind of serious. So I called for the uh, aircraft commander to come up since I was in the left seat, and I'd also called and requested a lower altitude for us. So I was diving the airplane down, and then it dawned on us uh, just about the same time that uh, maybe the ice uh, wasn't the problem. Um, well, the ice was the problem. The pedal uh, tubes were on each side of the nose, and uh, the pedal heat was on, and the pedal heads were not icing up. But the ice was building up on the mast and building up far enough forward that it affected the flow through the pedal tube. And uh, fortunately, you can get to the pedal mast from the inside of the airplane. So we had one of the crew members go down there and, and open up the little door and reach out and knock the ice off of the pedal mast. And boy, were we flying fast. <laughs> all, all that power and downhill. And not only that, you, you could get to the back side of the engine huh, through the wing. So we were sending one of the uh, crewmen out there with uh, tools to get to the back of the engine and jam a screwdriver in the generator, and then we'd unfeather the prop and shear the generator shaft so that we could use the power from that engine. We didn't really need, need that. It was uneventful after that. It was, it was interesting before, but, and one other time, we were flying uh, about two o'clock in the morning. We'd, we'd been to uh, Bermuda, and then we were flying to Germany, and we had some nuclear uh, material on, so we had to do it at night. So uh, we were flying along again. Weather was good. We were flying in and out of little cumulus clouds at 7,000 feet or something like that. And then I was, again, I was in the left seat, but the, uh, my flight commander was in the right seat. And he says, well, I think maybe I'll take a little nap here. You go ahead and fly the airplane, Bill. So I, I did. And all of a sudden, there was a big boom and a big flash of light right looked like it was right at us. It was static discharge that had built up on the airplane flying through the clouds. And I, I kind of anticipated that because I'd, I'd never seen one, but I'd had other pilots tell me about them. So Major Caskey over here, he woke up <laughs> and decided he didn't need to sleep anymore. I've had engine failures in flight, uh, well, in, in multi-engine airplanes. One time I was flying a Cessna jet, a Citation II, and uh, one nice brisk October morning while I was taking off, and this was with a company airplane. So got just a thousand feet in the air or a little more, and uh, we uh, encountered a flock of Canada geese, big, big, big birds. So uh, one of them 
hit the leading edge of the wing of the citation and close to the fuselage and bounced off of that and went right straight in the engine and, and it destroyed the engine. But the airplane flew amazingly well, just on one engine, turned around, landed back where we'd taken off. And another time in a Lockheed Lodestar, uh, flying for a company, for the same company. Again, we were flying, we'd, we'd gone from Fort Wayne, where we were living, and, uh, and the company was based there. We were going someplace on the East Coast to pick up some customers and take them back to Fort Wayne. A real nice morning, very nice. And just about the time we were over Pittsburgh, one engine made a different sound. It was still running. So I went back in the cabin and, and looked uh, to see what I could see, if anything. And there was a, a piece of the exhaust pipe laying in loose in the cowling that I could see. So uh, I feathered that engine. It was running good, but I didn't want the vibration of the propeller to uh, cause that piece of uh, exhaust pipe to fall out on somebody's head. So I feathered that engine and landed at uh, Pittsburgh and got another piece of exhaust pipe and went on. Bill Doty is 89 years old, and he's been married to his wife Patricia for 70 years. They were high school sweethearts and got married before Bill left for his Air Force training. Today they both live at Leeward Air Ranch, and Bill owns a Beechcraft Bonanza, which he still enjoys flying today. You can find images of all the planes that Bill flew, along with more information about all these stories, in the article at thelogbookpodcast.com. Special thanks goes out to Megan Brock, our recording and interviewing assistant. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released, and you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode, all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of The Logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in The Logbook.